Amen. Well, like I said last week, we are starting a new series. And, you know, pastors are supposed to say, you know, at, at the start of a new series, man, I'm so excited. It's going to be great. But the more I've read through some introductions to John, I haven't explored the Gospel of John as deeply as, as I have some other books. I am really excited. It's an incredibly fascinating uh, book. So if you have your Bibles, let's open together to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. John 2, 1 through 11. Um, I want you to think about the Gospels this way. If I were to say and, and pick out four of you in the, uh, in the congregation and say, I need each of you separately and apart from the other three to make a birthday cake for somebody. Let's say it's Zach's birthday today, and we were going to make him a birthday cake. It actually is his birthday today. And I were to say, four of you make a birthday cake, but you can't, you know, kind of work with the, the other three people. Uh, what we'd assume would happen is, is that when the, if those four cakes came back together, uh, there would be some unmistakable similarities, Right? On the top, it would say, happy birthday, Zach, to some degree, right? There would likely be icing, right? There would be some similarities. Uh, but at the same time, there would be some pretty significant differences, too. Uh, there'd be different flavors, different layers, different sizes of, of cake. Um, the similarities and differences, that's the same way I want us to look at the four gospel accounts of Jesus in the New, New Testament. There's some unmistakable similarities, right? Uh, these Gospels are here to tell us about the person of Jesus. They're here to tell us about the work of Jesus, what He came to do, what is the good news. But there's some differences. Um, there's some highlights. Uh, there's things that John emphasizes that Luke doesn't, right? Um, there are um, some miracles that all four Gospels have. Uh, and so if you're ever playing like a Trivial Pursuit Bible version, uh, there's one miracle that's in all four of the Gospels. Do you know what it is? It's the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, but John, um, in, his, in his account of Jesus, uh, there's, he, he, he begins with a very, very interesting miracle. Uh, and his miracle, uh, the one that he leads off with, is in none of the other Gospels. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't, uh, don't write about this in their Gospel account of Jesus. And not only that, this unique Gospel, that, this unique miracle that John has... Uh, is the very first thing in his public ministry. So here's what that tells us. There's something special about this miracle, if John included it. There's 35 unique miracles in the Gospels, 35 unique uh, miracles, but John only highlights seven, and this one that we're looking at this morning is the first one. Uh, so this one must be unique and special in a way. So that being said, let's stand uh, for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. 
and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Take a seat. Uh, a couple things I want to look at this morning in response to this passage. What, the first is obvious. Uh, this is a miracle. Uh, so when I look, that's the first point this morning I want us to look at is, is what is a miracle and what exactly is happening in this miracle? But if you look down at verse 11, uh, John, the writer, uh, says that this miracle is also a sign. Uh, it's a sign. Uh, so that's the second point I want us to take a look at. And then lastly, uh, it's a parable, meaning uh, that there's a lesson. There's something we're supposed to walk away with. Uh, after this experience, after studying this miracle. So it's a miracle, it's a sign, and a parable. Uh, those are our three points. Uh, so first, uh, a miracle. Uh, it's been a while since we've been in the gospel, so can I remind us again what a miracle is? If you're like me, I grew up assuming that a miracle was something that Jesus did that was supernatural to prove to anybody who saw it and, and to prove publicly, this public demonstration of power, that he was something different, uh, that he was God. But there's a problem with that, right? You know what the problem with that is? Jesus wasn't the only person to do miracles. So is every person who does a miracle uh, a God, in a sense? No. Um, that's not the purpose of the miracles. Miracles are, according to Mark, the Gospel of Mark. I'm switching Gospels here for just a moment. At the beginning of, of in Mark's account, Jesus says, behold, at the beginning of his public ministry, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, we're here in this kingdom of the world, but with Jesus coming down and starting his public ministry, he says the kingdom of God is now at hand. And the natural question is, is, well, what does this new kingdom, O oh Jesus, look like? How will we know it when we see it? What is this kingdom? And Jesus illustrates with miracles. What is supernatural to us? Here's what this means. What's supernatural to us? What kind of goes above and beyond uh, laws of nature, uh, healings, um, the parting of water? Uh, what Jesus is saying in his new kingdom is this, is that what you see as supernatural is actually natural. Uh, because you've gotten so used to the brokenness, the finiteness, um, the evil in this world, you have actually gotten to the point to where you expect nothing out of the ordinary. And I've come to bring in and usher in this new kingdom and this new world. And you want to know what it looks like? It doesn't look like this. It doesn't look like blindness. It doesn't look like bleeding. It doesn't look like poverty. It doesn't look like being defenseless. It looks like being healed. It looks like being given sight. It looks like being given provision and food. It looks like being rescued. What Jesus is saying is that in this new kingdom, this new kingdom that I'm ushering in, that you get to see little snapshots of, little glimpses of, that will come in, into reality. Full 
deeper and much deeper when he returns is, is you get to see what that new natural order looks like now. And all of these little miracles, what's supernatural to us, Jesus is saying, this is, this is natural. This is ordinary. This is what defines, this is what identifies my, my kingdom is coming. Health, life, generosity. So if that's, if that's what miracles are, then what is this miracle telling us about the new heavens and the new earth, about this kingdom that Jesus is ushering in? Well, first, to answer that, let's look at the problem. There is a very serious problem here in this passage. Verse 3, that first statement, when the wine ran out, um, what we need to do is kind of put on our our, our Jewish lenses um, because, you know, when we think about weddings, in our culture and in our environment, if a wedding goes past an hour, you know, we're starting to look at the watch and we're starting to go, the football game's coming on. We've got other things we've got to do, right? Uh, Jewish weddings, especially at the time of Jesus, would last anywhere from three days to a week. Um, people would step away from their work. People would step away from their land. Uh, families would come together in, in cities and local villages, and, and weddings were an experience, not just an event, but an experience. And um, just like now, the host was responsible for provision, for food, for wine. Um, This wedding has a master of ceremonies, right? Someone who's kind of like the cheerleader of the party, like now we're going to do this and now we're going to do that, who's kind of ordering uh, the events. A little bit different wedding than we're used to. Um, So here's the problem. Um, A wedding is typically over when the resources have run out. And we don't know if this is day one or day two. The way John writes it, it sounds like it's like right after the party begins that the wine has run out. And Mary, uh, in in true um, motherly fashion, notices this. And she tells Jesus, there's no more wine. And the wine is gone. So obviously, um, this is a poor wedding. Um, some of us have been to extravagant weddings where there's food left on the table, uh, where there's still um, drinks in the cooler by the time everybody leaves. But that's not the case here in this circumstance. Um, this is obviously a poor family um, because day one, day two, uh, the wine is running out. And here's what that means. Uh, three things. With the wine running out, uh, that means shame. Uh, None of us want to host a party that's lame. And in fact, that's why a lot of us don't like hosting and don't like hosting celebrations is because we want to do it right and we want to make sure that there's enough. And if there's not, then we we don't want people leaving saying, that was so lame, right? With the wine running out, this party is over and there's shame. But this is something else we don't know about uh, Jewish marriages. And there's an old law that said, if there weren't enough provisions at a wedding, if expectations weren't met, uh, party goers could actually sue the host. Uh, you could get litigious with the host. And so there's fear at this wedding. Shame, fear. But let's also notice this, we're human beings too. Uh, none of us like it when the party's over, right? If the wine's done, the party's done. If the resources have been tapped out, so's the party, it's over. It's the end, and it's premature. 
So if you're the family and if you're the host and if you're the master of ceremonies, this is bringing shame. This is bringing fear. This is bringing sadness into your life, right? But then steps in Jesus. And what does he do? He makes quality wine. Quality wine. Did you notice that? Typically at a Jewish wedding, you serve the really, really good wine first and then the watered-down stuff later when people are a little bit more loose, a little bit more comfortable, right? That was just a tradition. Good stuff first, bad stuff last. But Jesus flipped it, right? They served what they had first, and then what Jesus makes isn't like the Kirkland brand. It's not the Costco version of wine. This would make like Bordeaux taste like grape juice, the best wine. And he saves it for last, and he brings it to the party. But it's not just quality. Did you notice the quantity? We've got these six stone jars, right? We just read about them. And how much do each of these stone jars carry? Anywhere from 20 to 30 gallons. So let's kind of split it down the middle. That's 150 gallons, give or take 25 gallons, 150 gallons of wine. Now, the average American in the U.S. today drinks 14 gallons of wine a year. Jesus just made 150 gallons of wine. So what what was initially seen as just provision, really, really good provision for a party, has now turned into an incredibly extravagant wedding gift. You can't drink 150 gallons at a party, regardless of your liver size, regardless of your, you know, fraternity association back in college. You can't do it. There had to be leftovers. That's what's assumed. There's leftovers. And what a rich gift to the bride and to the groom, right? Imagine if you're the bride and groom, uh, you know, months down the road, um, it's the end of the day, you're going, let's get another chalice of wine. It's that good wine that was still left over from your wedding. What are you thinking about? You're thinking about Jesus and your provision and his provision provision for them. So if a miracle is, is, is pointing us to the new natural, if, if a miracle is a, a, a sign, a whisper, um, a, a signpost as, as to what the new kingdom is going to be like, what do we learn about the new kingdom from this miracle? That in response to our shame and in response to our fear, there's provision. But not only that, Uh, The response to our fear and provision is also the source of our joy and our celebration. And that thing is not an idea. It's not a thing. It's not the wine. It's not the party. It's not the bride or groom. It's Jesus. Don't miss this. Do you hear what I just said? The provision for our fear And our guilt and our shame is also the same source of our joy and our celebration. It's Jesus. That's who answers um, not just our social shame, but our cosmic shame before God. More on that in a minute. But, But notice this too. Friends, this is the first miracle out of the bat in the Gospel of John. And John only has seven and, you know, you might think, well, this one doesn't seem a- as important. You know, make it like three or four, like put it in the middle. No, John puts this first. Why? 
What is John trying to communicate to us about this new heavens and this new earth, this new kingdom, this new world order that Jesus is bringing in is, is, is this. It's one about celebration and joy and happiness. Is that what you assume about God and his work in your life? Is he there to bring you joy and happiness? That he cares more about that than you do? That's an essential part of his new heavens and his new earth. No shame, no guilt, but celebration, joy, and happiness. Um, typically, I kind of save application for the end, but here's what I, I want us to do. I'm going to jump in a little early with it, and I'm going to put this on our facilitators and on our administrators of our community groups. Uh, between now and, you know, when we take a break from community groups in December, here's what I want us to do in our groups. Let's talk about our shame. Let's talk about our fears. Uh, let's talk about our, our worries. Let's not just talk about them. Let's go to Jesus with them. Let's ask Him to work. Let's, a, let's, let's ask Him to do what seems to us something supernatural. To Him, it's like, no, 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 that's the norm. That's actually natural. That's the way it was supposed to be, and that's the way it's going to be. It feels supernatural to you, but to Jesus, that's, that's an old hat. Ask Him to address those things. And then sometime in, in November, um, you know, clear the slate uh, whenever your group gathers and pull out all the stops. Choose a food, uh, choose a meal that communicates to you happiness. I can't remember how many Thanksgivings ago it was that the Pattons kind of finally realized we started talking to each other like, do you really like turkey? No. Do you? No. Why are we doing turkey? Let's do what we like. Let's do what we enjoy. And now we do something entirely different every Thanksgiving. We're just doing it because it was tradition you were supposed to. And we're like, no, now it's like a red meat Thanksgiving. Now it feels like Thanksgiving. Pull out all the stops. Uh, don't go Kirkland. Uh, don't go two buck Chuck. Pull out the stops. And w with one eye, look to the past and go, what has the Lord done over this last season? How has he answered our shame and our guilt? How has he addressed our fear? We've already seen it just this week with all the hospital stuff going on with people. We've already seen it. We've got a head start. But let's catalog those things. And at the meal, let's celebrate those together. How has the Lord answered that prayer? What has He done? How has He heard you? Uh, how has He turned your fear and shame into celebration? Right? Pull out all the stops. Let's do it. That's the miracle. That's what Jesus did, and that's what He's pointing us to. But like I said, in, in verse 11, John calls this miracle a sign. Uh, it's been a while since we talked about that. Let me remind us what a sign is. At one of our previous homes, uh, there used to be a sign out in the front of our house, and I think I've used this illustration before. The sign uh, has a station wagon, and there's no words on the sign. Uh, it's a station wagon, and you can tell it's going fast because there's like all these lines behind it, right? The cartoonist is trying to make the station wagon go fast. And there's a speed hump in the middle of the road, and the station wagon is airborne going over the speed hump, Right? And, you know, if you look in the back seat, you know, the children are like plastered to this, the ceiling of the station wagon. No words, but what is the sign communicating? That, that somewhere around here there's a speed hump. And that if you go over it too fast, 
You're going to put your kids' faces into the ceiling of your car. So go slow, right? Um, Hear this. This is very important, not just for this passage, but for a lot of the things, a lot of the signs that we see in the Scriptures. What is most important when we see signs is it's not the sign itself, but what it's meant to signify. The important thing about that sign outside of our house is, is this. The thing it's signifying is that speed hump, that real speed hump that's in the road. If you don't slow down, you're going to do damage to yourself and to your car. Slow down. The sign's not important. What's important is what it's signifying, right? You can have the most expensive ring, wedding ring in Texas, the biggest diamond, the most precious of metals. But if your husband's going to be unfaithful, what does it matter? You've got the sign, you've got the ring, but what does it signify? What is that ring pointing us to? Fidelity, faithfulness to one another. What it signifies is what's most important. So this miracle is, John calls it a sign. What is it pointing us to? Um, For the answer to that, we need to look at the stone jars. Look back at verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars, and now listen to how John describes it. They were there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Again, this was written in a different culture than ours. Here's what would happen if you were inviting guests into your house from a wedding or into your house simply for a meal, is you would perform what the Jews called the ceremonial purification rites, which is uh, they would use um, the water from these basins and they would pour them over your hands and your feet before you came in the house, right? That was tradition. That was normal. In fact, if you go back to the Gospel of Mark in chapter 7, the Pharisees confront Jesus uh, and his disciples. And it's not really a question, although it's framed as a question. It's more of a comment. They ask, why don't you and your disciples follow the, the, the washings, the purification rites uh, that we follow? And again, it wasn't a question, it was a comment. Why aren't you as pious and as righteous as we are? We're following the purification laws. Why don't you do that? You know, with a sly a smile on their face. And if you remember, right before Jesus' crucifixion, when he's in the upper room with the disciples, Right before they partake of the Last Supper, what does Jesus do? The one who said, I did not come to be served, but I came to serve. He took a bowl, and he performed the purification rite, the washings. He washed the feet of his disciples, right? That's what this water was used for. That was the original purpose of these stone jars, um, and what they were used for was the washings. But now notice what it's for. It's not used for washing anymore. It's been transformed into something else. What is it? It's been transformed into the wine of joy and celebration. I can't say it better. Listen to what an, another writer says um, about what, what's, what's, what's being signified, what's happening here with these, with these, stone, um, these stone jars. Jesus is turning the water of Judaism into the wine of Christianity. He's taking the Christless water and he's turning it into the wine of the new covenant. From the water of the law into the wine of the gospel. From that which is tasteless 
to that now which is robust and full of flavor. And you might say, Jake, bless your heart. That's hyperbole. How do you know? That's, a, that's exactly what Jesus was intending to do. And maybe you noticed it. Go back to verses 3 and 4. Notice the progression here. John's very intentional. Uh, the wine's run out. Mary notices it. And the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Uh, she knows that Jesus is different. She knows he can do something about it. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. And then verse 6, what does he do? It sounds like Jesus just said no, right? Through a number of words, a number of statements, Jesus said to Mary, what does this have to do with me? No, but then in verse 6, he goes and does it. What changes his mind? Or is this just an error in the transcript? Um, notice what Jesus says to his mother. What does this have to do with me? He answers his own question. My hour has not yet come. It's, it's great when all the commentaries say the same thing. You know what the hour that Jesus is talking about there? That hour uh, is that season, that time when he is going to suffer uh, the crucifixion uh, and the torture and the death that we're all supposed to experience. That's his hour, the hour of wrath, the hour of judgment, the hour of fear, the hour of dread, uh, the hour that, that the thing he prays for in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, please take this cup of wrath, take this wine of wrath from me if there be any other way. And the Father says there's no other way. You have to take it. And Jesus takes that cup of wrath. So, what he's telling us through this sign is a small picture of what he's going to do at Calvary. Now think of it this way. Uh, many of us ha have seen or, and or read uh, the Lord of the Rings uh, trilogy. Do you remember that scene at the very beginning when Gandalf is coming through? Um, he's coming through the Shire. He hasn't been there in a long time. It's Bilbo's birthday. It's going to be a grand celebration. And he's, he's not yet to, uh, to Bilbo's house. And a couple kids approach him. And through cheers and, and through puppy dog eyes, what do they beg Gandalf for? Fireworks, Gandalf. Give us some fireworks. And so after a couple requests, you know, he, he pretends like he's not paying attention, but with the wink of his eye, he sends out a couple sparklers uh, out of the back of his wagon. And, and with joy and with glee, uh, they're filled for the moment. They're happy. They're ecstatic. But what they don't know is, is what's coming, right? It's Bilbo's 111st birthday party, right? And those sparklers are nothing compared to the fireworks that he's prepared for the grand show. Uh, friends, here's the sign. Uh, the wine of Jesus, the quantity, the quality, the generous provision of it, uh, the, the fear and the shame moved into joy and celebration. Uh, here in John 2, that's the sparklers. Those are the little firecrackers, and that, that fills us for a moment. But on this side of Calvary, what do we see in the person and the work of Jesus? What do we see happening on that hill, on that mountain? That's the fireworks. That's where he pours himself out as a drink offering, and he offers himself as a sacrifice to the church. That's what it signifies. 
hinted at here in John 2, manifested later in this gospel and his death and his resurrection. That's the sign. So what are we supposed to do with this? Uh, what are the lessons uh, for us in the application, uh, and in particular John's purpose in writing uh, this story? Here's what he says, uh, at the, what John says at the end uh, of his account. He says in chapter 20, verse 31, that these things are written so that you might believe. These things are written that you might believe. So the first one is belief. In other words, we're supposed to read this account from a person 2,000 years ago, and we're supposed to be stirred, and we're supposed to look at the evidence and go, I'm convinced. I, I believe that Jesus wasn't just a good teacher. I believe that Je Jesus wasn't just this odd supernatural being. He's the God-man. That's the glory that, that John wants us to see here at the end of uh, verse 11. Do you see that? Where he says, and this is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory. That's his glory, is that he is both God entirely and that he is man. And he's come to usher in this new kingdom, this new world order. And he's showing us what that looks like through his miracles, through change. And he wants you to believe that more than anything else. And you say, well, how, you know, we can't believe you know, things we hear today. Why are we supposed to believe things, you know, from someone 2,000 years ago? And I'm thankful to other writers who are much smarter than me and other commentators. Here's their argument. If you are Jesus and you are who you say you are, you are the God-man, and that you have come down from heaven, that you have emptied yourself of your glory, that you have taken on human flesh. He's, he's become like one of us, and that is his glory. You're going to manifest that. You're going to be very, very careful how you show it. Uh, you're going to do it publicly. Uh, you're going to do it uh, where the most people can see it. Uh, you're going to do it in, in such a way that's undeniable. If we are writing Jesus' gospel, if, if we are writing the good news, if, if we're narrating the story, we're going to say it's got to be big. It's got to be over the top. It's got to be convincing. There has to be no question in their mind. And Jesus does nothing like it. He goes to Cana. And apart from chapter 1, we never hear about Cana again. Cana is where Philip and Nathaniel came from. And while he was there calling those two disciples, he was invited to a, a wedding, a poor person's wedding. And, and Jesus said yes, by the way. Did you catch that? Jesus said yes to a poor person's wedding. In Cana, in the back country, in a city that nobody knows and nobody would ever talk about in the Gospels again, nowhere, nowheresville, right? John's first miracle recorded, Jesus' first public miracle recorded in any of the Gospels is in the middle of nowhere with a bunch of nobodies turning water into wine. That is unimpressive, but that doesn't mean it's not beautiful. He's not interested in, in going public. He's not interested in wowing and surprising people. He's interested in the poor. He's interested in people who have been marginalized. Uh, he's interested in, in people who are suffering from shame and from fear and who are at threat of, of losing joy and celebration in their life. You know what that means? That means in God's economy, everybody's valuable. That means he cares about the poor. He doesn't just care about New York. He cares about Salina. He doesn't just care about people who are born on third base. He cares about people who are born outside the baseball field. 
He doesn't distinguish uh, people between people like we do when we're giving out good things. He cares about the lowly. He cares about the poor. Is that how you would start a gospel of Jesus? Is that how you would start the good news? So in a weird way, that almost confirms for us that, that what John has to be writing is true because none of us would ever write it that way. None of us would ever do it that way. We wouldn't start that way and with those kind of people. We'd go bigger. Jesus went lower. So not only is it meant to give us belief, it's meant to give us dignity. We're all Cana. Are you poor? Are you full of fear? Do you suffer shame? That puts you on God's radar. He cares for you. He wants to answer that need in you. But He wants to tell you that He is the answer to that need. He Himself. As, these, uh, as this couple and as this host invited Jesus to His wedding, uh, have you invited Him into your sorrow, your fear, uh, to change that into celebration? Uh, the last one is, is obedience. Um, I'm thankful to another commentator for this point. This is, this is really good. Uh, you know, most human biblical characters in the Scriptures aren't portrayed positively. Um, Mary is one of those few that's, for the most part, is uh, portrayed positively. Uh, notice what she says. She knows Jesus can do something about it. She says, Jesus, almost like through clenched teeth, without her lips moving, like, Jesus, do something about this. This party is going to crash. Uh, these poor people, Right? And he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. But then did you notice her response? It's odd. Here's what she does. She was just told no by her son, and then she goes to the servants and she says, do whatever he tells you. Do it. Does that feel like life to you? You go to God for something. He doesn't give you the answer you want. How do you respond? Typically, if you're like me, it's like, well, I guess the, the answer is no. Uh, I guess God doesn't care. Uh, I, you know, I, maybe he's not as loving as I thought he was. But notice Mary's response. She doesn't sulk. She responds even, even to an answer no with obedience. Servants, I don't know what's coming. I don't know what Jesus is going to do, but whatever he says, do it. Do it because of who Jesus was to her and because of his great grace to her, she knew he could do something. She has what we would call not naive optimism, but a very gospel-centered optimism. She knows who he is, what he can do. And even though it might not happen in, in the time that you want it, and maybe you didn't get the answer you want, you know God is going to do something. That keeps you on the field, that keeps you playing, that, that, that keeps that door always open for possibility to say, I don't know what's going to happen, but do what he says. We've got to respond to this guy with obedience. We've got to follow. We've got to trust him, right? And that's so hard. I'm thankful John included that here. Um, I'll, I'll end with this. I, it was many years ago over Easter, and uh, I was leading the Easter service at our church. And a peer came up to me a couple of days after the Easter service. I didn't preach, but I did everything else. And uh, he said, you know, uh, I was at church on Sunday, you know, on Easter Sunday, which is, you know, by definition, that's supposed to be the happiest Sunday. 
you know, of, of the calendar year, right? And even if you're not happy, most people fake it, right? And he said, you never smiled once during the service. Not once. Mm-hmm. You know, you're right. Do you think about joy? Do you think about celebration? And if you're playing the name game, do you automatically associate that with God? That He is the Lord of the party. That celebration and that joy are supposed to be a manifestation of this life because it's a manifestation, it's the definition of the life that is to come. We are not people of joy and celebration, and I'm pointing fingers at myself going, I'm, I'm the perfect example. I can't tell you how many times I get up here and I've got to say the good news with an expressionless face. And that's my own cynicism towards God. And what John wants to tell us is, is that cynicism can die. If we come to him with our fear, our guilt, our shame, him, not ourselves, not our peers, not our work, but if we come to him, he will turn that into celebration. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah, this is Old Testament, this is old school. Listen to what Isaiah says about the new kingdom, about that which is to come. And listen to the language he uses and see if this doesn't put a smile on your face. Isaiah says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, and of aged wine well-refined. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach meaning shame of his people, he will take away from all the earth the Lord has spoken. You can't get much more old school than Isaiah, and he's saying that about the age that is to come. He's talking about after Jesus comes back again, and in its fullness, he's saying, guess what? You've had wine, you've celebrated, you haven't celebrated. You have no idea what's coming. It's that good. I should put a smile on her face. Amen? Let's pray. Father, forgive us, um, especially Presbyterians, for having those wrinkles across our brow because we frown and, and scowl so much. And we have forgotten that the good news is not just for our minds, but it's also for our hearts and for our hands. Would you infuse us with the good news, body and soul, mind and spirit? Uh, remind us again of the debt that you have covered, and instead of shame and fear, would it lead us into celebration and joy and happiness in you? And would it put a smile on our face, and not the fake kind? Help us not to pose, but make it true and make it genuine, because it's founded and it's rooted and it's established produced by you. You're our source. So commune with us. Help us to commune with you and make us people of joy. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.